Well, if you have a Bible with you, um, I would like you to turn to the Gospel of John. We'll continue in our series in the Gospel of John this morning as we prepare our hearts to share in the Lord's Supper this morning as we prepare for communion. If you're watching online this morning um, and you don't have a Bible with you, I just want you to know that that's okay. I realize we have all kinds of different people watching and you may not be familiar with the Bible, and I just want you to know that's okay. I will explain things as we go along, so it shouldn't be a problem. Well, last week, we came toward the end of John chapter 7. This week, we are going to look at John chapter 7, verse 53, through John chapter 8, verse 11. John chapter 7, verse 53, through John chapter 8, verse 11. It actually forms one unit. Last week... We came to the end of Jesus' sermon at the end of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. That sermon comprises a good part of John chapter 7. And when we came to the end of that sermon, on the last and final day of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, it says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, and he gives what is known as the great invitation. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What a great invitation. And we saw last week that there were four different responses from the people gathered at the temple. Some believed, some rejected, some were confused and some were deeply convicted. Well, that brings us to the very last verse of chapter 7, where it says, they went each to his own house. So this is after the sermon is through. And then it says in verse 1 of chapter 8, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now this is a very familiar account, a very familiar story, and there is a lot here this morning. And our first point is a woman caught in adultery. But before we get into the actual passage this morning, there is something that I want to share with you that I think is important to share. In the Gospel of John, verses 753 through 811, 
are part of a long-standing debate over whether or not this passage, this story, belongs in the Bible. For hundreds of years there has been this debate over whether or not the story of the woman caught in adultery belongs in the Bible, in the Gospel of John, or whether it shouldn't be there at all. And the reason for the date, or excuse me, for the debate is that some of the oldest manuscripts that we have available to us do not include this story. Now, without going into a lot of detail this morning, when it comes to the study of manuscripts, older is better. Because the older the parchment, the older the manuscript, the closer it is to what would have been the originals. And so they are considered to be even more reliable. And some of the oldest manuscripts do not contain this particular story. Some believe that somewhere along the line, a copyist of the scriptures knowing of this story, inserted it in here in the Gospel of John. So there has been this debate. Now, something that is very important for you to understand, this is not a liberal versus conservative debate. Don't think that way. This is a conservative versus conservative debate. Some of the most godly biblical scholars, men that I respect greatly, don't think this story should be in the Bible. There are other godly men, biblical scholars, who believe this should be in the Bible. And so there has always been this difference of thought. Most English versions of the Bible contain some kind of footnote or bracketing of this particular passage. In the ESV, I think it says the oldest or some manuscripts do not contain 753 through 811. In the New International Version, the NIV, it says the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 753 through 811. So the question is, what does a pastor or any teacher do with this passage? I was reading in the Baker New Testament commentary series, and the Gospel of John was written by uh, William Hendrickson, a great Bible scholar. He's now home with the Lord, but was a prolific writer at one time. And he writes this. He says, although it cannot be proven that this story was part of the fourth gospel, neither is it possible to establish the opposite with any degree of finality. Now, this isn't on the screen, so it's just a little longer than we could have put on the screen, so you can just listen as I read this. He says, we believe, moreover, that what is here recorded really took place and contains nothing in conflict with the apostolic spirit. Hence, instead of removing this section from the Bible, it should be retained and used for our benefit. Ministers should not be afraid to base sermons upon it. However, on the other hand, all the facts concerning the textual evidence should be made known. And that would be my personal position on this. This is a long-standing debate that probably will never be fully resolved. Good and godly men on both sides. So if you're teaching, leading a small group, teaching a class on the Gospel of John, I think you should include this story. I think you should teach on it. But I think you should be intellectually honest. I think you should be a person of integrity, and I think those students who are with you, or those group members who are with you, should know about this debate. 
I think it's important for them to do so because there is such a difference of opinion. Well, that brings us to the account itself. Jesus returns to the temple and begins teaching again. When the Pharisees bring him a woman who had been caught in adultery. It's interesting. Verse 53 says they each went to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So this is after the sermon at the Feast of Booths is over. He goes to the Mount of Olives, but then he comes back. Early in the morning, verse 2, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. So here's the scene. Jesus returns to the temple. It says that he sat down and taught them. So he is sitting. And he is obviously, based on the context of this, sitting in what must have been a dirt area because he writes on the ground, writes in a way that they noticed that he was writing something. So we don't know where this is in the temple grounds. So it appears to be some kind of dirt area um, where he sits down and teaches but we do know it was at the temple. And so the scribes and the Pharisees bring this woman to Jesus, and they place her right in the midst of where Jesus was teaching and say, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now this is interesting. Something doesn't seem right here. And the reason that something doesn't seem right here is because something was not right here. Lots of questions, like why did they bring her to Jesus? They could have brought her to the Jewish ruling council. They could have brought her to one of the synagogues. But no, they bring her to Jesus. And a question that's always been asked by the, about this passage is where was the man? It takes two to commit adultery, both of them were subject to be punished, stoned by the law. So where is the man? Why did they just bring the woman? And then where are the witnesses? They said she was caught in adultery. It doesn't say they caught her. And nothing could be established without at least two witnesses. So something doesn't seem right here. But nonetheless, they bring this woman to Jesus and tell him that she has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now in verse 5, they say, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They want to know what Jesus would do with this woman. And this brings us to something that we have gone over quite a few times here in the Gospel of John, and that is that the Jewish religious leaders here, specifically the scribes and the Pharisees, misused the law of Moses. They had their particular bent on it, and they often misused it. They misinterpreted it, misimplied it. Here, they're using it as a weapon. They often used it as a weapon against Jesus to try to condemn Jesus. And we see this very clearly in Matthew chapters 5 and 6 and 7, that they were misusing, misapplying the law. And Jesus comes along. And one of the things that he does that is very prevalent in the Gospel of John is he gives us a right understanding of the law. 
He helps us to understand that he came to fulfill the law. He came to help us understand the right use of the law. But most importantly, Jesus came to tell us that he is here to rescue us from the condemnation and damnation of the law. The law is good, it is perfect, it is right. But the law condemns us of our sin. It shows us that we can't keep the law. According to the book of Galatians, the law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It is a schoolmaster, a tutor, to show us our sins so that we might seek a savior. And what they misunderstood is that the law was meant to be a means of mercy, a means of grace, a means of showing the love that Christ was bringing. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13, Jesus says, Go and learn. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's why the law is here, that we might show you mercy. Those who are condemned by the law, I came to rescue you from the law. But they want to know what Jesus is going to do. And so verse 6, the first sentence is really a key sentence in this whole passage. Excuse me. In verse 6, it says, This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. That is so important to us. This they said. Now, when the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. The reason they brought this woman to Jesus is because they want to test him. They want to bring a charge against him. And that's how they've used the law in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And here they're doing it again. They didn't care about the righteousness of God. They didn't care about the holiness of God. They didn't care about the justice, the love, the mercy of God. They didn't care about this woman. They were just using this woman. They were just using her situation to test Jesus. Is Jesus going to say, don't stone her? And then they can report that to the Jewish ruling council. They can discredit Jesus before the people. What is Jesus going to do? And so we see so clearly their false motives, their hypocrisy in bringing this woman to Jesus. And then the second sentence of verse 6 says this. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So Jesus doesn't immediately respond. They're hurling these accusations against this woman, asking Jesus what he's going to do, and he just bends down and writes on the ground. And so there is this long-standing, hundreds of years old speculation what did Jesus write? What was he writing in the sand? And here's the answer. We don't know. We don't know. That's the right answer. Lots of speculation. Some think that Jesus was writing down the sins of the people who were accusing her. I find that a little hard to believe because writing that in dirt and having them notice it and be able to read it written in the sand, it's possible but I'm not sure that is. Some believe that he may have, been, have written a scripture verse or some kind of symbol. But the best suggestion that I've heard is this. I don't think it matters what Jesus was writing on the ground. 
I think he was doing this for dramatic pause. He was letting them hurl their accusations. And he was just pausing, preparing for what he was about to say. It's interesting in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1, we come to the place where there is the seventh seal judgment. This judgment is about to be unleashed upon the earth. And it says something very interesting. It says there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. There is this, right in the middle of the book of Revelation, there is this dramatic pause before this great judgment takes place. I think the best suggestion is that's what Jesus is doing here. Remember, he's God. This is God sitting on the ground and writing in the sand. I think this is just a dramatic pause for what he is about to say. And that brings us to our second point, which is Jesus' amazing response. Jesus sees right through the hypocrisy and false motives of the Pharisees and makes a statement that pierces their souls. In verses 7 and 8, notice, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. I love it. His writing on the ground makes this super profound, piercing statement and then bends down again and writes in the ground. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. If you are perfectly keeping all the provisions of the law, if you have no sin in your life, Throw the first stone. Go ahead. You be the first one to throw the stone. It's actually a very important lesson for us. It really is. You know, in Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Before you seek to take the speck out of your brother's eye, first take the plank out of your own eye doesn't mean you can't deal with someone else's sin or talk to them about their sin but before you do you better make sure that you've allowed God to examine your own heart you better make sure that you have went through a very important time of self-examination in your own life what about your own sin what about the things you need to deal with then Jesus said you will see clearly to take the speck from your brother's eye. So it doesn't mean we can't deal with other people's sins, but let us do it in love, in mercy, in kindness. Let us do it with the right motives. And he says, and he knew that they were filled with hypocrisy and false motives. So he says, if you're without sin, let that person step up and be the first to cast the stone. And then in verse 9, even people who know very little about it know verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Friends, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. They understood exactly what Jesus said when he said, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. They knew that they were filled with sin. They saw their own hypocrisy. 
They knew why they were bringing this woman. None of them was worthy to be the first one to cast the stone, to throw the stone. And so they leave. And I love the way the Bible says it one by one, beginning with the older. The older people had, the older men had more experience. They got it first. And so they begin to leave one by one. No one, no one, not one of those men was in a position to condemn her with the sin in their own lives. Well, after dealing with the Pharisees, Jesus then turns his attention to the woman caught in adultery. Look at verses 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. What a scene. Here is this woman, and she had committed adultery. And he says, Where are those who condemn you? Where are your accuse, accusers? And she says, No one, Lord. It's interesting that she calls him Lord. I don't want to read more into this than is there. But nonetheless, I personally believe that salvation has come to this woman. By the means of the power of the Holy Spirit, I think she sees him as who he claims to be, who he is. She says, No one has condemned me, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I know you've heard this said many times before, but it's worth repeating. He's not in any way condoning her sin. He says to her, go and sin no more. But I believe he's saying to her, go now in my righteousness, in my strength. Go now and sin no more. And he's not saying, go and never commit another sin for the rest of your life. He is talking about a habitual pattern of sin. He said, go and stop living a life of habitual sin. You've been changed. I've forgiven you. I have freed you from your slavery to sin. Now go and stop living the life you've been living in slavery to sin. But Jesus, God in the flesh, says to this sinful woman, neither do I condemn you. Folks, I believe those are some of the most beautiful words ever spoken. Neither do I condemn you. Can you imagine what this must have been like for her? You're forgiven. You will no longer be subject to the wrath or condemnation of a holy God because you have been forgiven and you are now mine. Neither do I condemn you. And I want every single person here to know, every single person watching online, that these are the words that Jesus speaks to you when you receive him as your Savior and Lord. If you want to get the full impact of this passage, you need to understand that I am this woman. You are this woman. You are the woman caught in adultery. I will guarantee you that Satan has taken every single one of you and he has dragged you before Jesus and he has said, this man, this woman deserves to die. 
God, they deserve your condemnation. They deserve your damnation. And when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Jesus says, my child, you are forgiven. Neither do I condemn you. And now go in my righteousness and in my strength. Go and sin no more. When we close this morning after communion, we're going to sing a song that we sing quite often, a song I personally love. It's a song written by Matt Papa called His Mercy is More. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And though obviously this song didn't exist when this woman was alive, if it had, I think it would have been one of her favorite songs. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. That is what this passage is about. So as you go to communion this morning, I want you to think about those words, neither do I condemn you. I pray and hope that those are some of the most beautiful words you've ever heard. May you meditate deeply upon them as we share communion together. I want to give some instructions because I always want to be sensitive to the fact that there may be people for, here for communion who haven't been here before during COVID. So what we're going to do is one deacon is going to pray for both the bread and the cup. The deacons will hand out the bread and cup together so they're going to come to you. And if during COVID you are not yet comfortable taking communion, that's okay. You can politely refuse it. When everyone has been served, I will read a passage of scripture and then we will eat and drink together. If you are watching by live stream this morning while the deacons are serving communion, we will encourage you to use this as an important time of meditation and reflection. So we will share the Lord's Supper at this time.